Welcome to the IEH Podcast, where we profile current and former fellows of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities here at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth, Coordinator for Faculty Programs. In this episode, Communication Specialist Melissa Clay speaks with Nicola Lowe, Associate Professor of City and Regional Planning and a recipient of the 2016-2017 Academic Excellence Award. Dr. Lowe discusses her research on skill and labor practices, focusing on the Latino workforce. She also speaks to her renewed passion for novels and how alternative sleep patterns have improved her rest and productivity. What, uh, what classes do you teach now? I teach mostly graduate courses, so a course on economic development policy. Then I teach a course which I developed 10 years ago called Planning for Jobs, which looks at labor market transformation and employment policy. And then I teach a freshman seminar, mm-hmm. which is called The Changing American Job. And that is a course which lures students in by promising to help them develop strategies for entering the labor market Mm -hmm. upon graduation and for successfully navigating their careers. But in the process, I also expose them to the plight of middle and low-income American workers Mm -hmm. and get them to really think about their responsibility as future co-workers, as future managers, as future entrepreneurs or business owners Mm -hmm. in creating um, quality employment opportunities for many Americans, not just those at the top. That's great. And I read in your planning for jobs syllabus or description uh, there's more of that in that in that um, in that course, and you talk about, about introducing students to a woman named Maddie, isn't it? Yes. Talk, can you talk a little yeah. bit about that? So I use a wonderful essay that um, was published in the Atlantic Monthly by Adam Davidson from okay. Planet Money as a really um, useful exercise to get students to think past the standard policy approach, which is inequality simply needs an educational fix. So if we just get more people, especially younger um, uh, individuals, low-income individuals, into college and through that sort of educational pipeline, that they will come out the other end prepared to have meaningful and rewarding careers and will not face the kinds of income inequality that face those with less education today. And in the essay, um, Adam Davidson introduces us to a woman named Maddie who works in a factory in South Carolina. And he uses the case to make that argument that if Maddie were to get an education. She's a single mother, so she faces that as a challenge to getting additional education. But if she were able to get um, either a community college degree or a four-year degree, that she would have much greater opportunities for social and economic mobility. And what we do in the class is, after reading that essay, 
I break up the students into several groups, and each group has to come up with a solution for promoting mobility for Maddie that is not dependent on removing her from that work environment. I've done this now for about four years, and or for four classes. The students have done a really great job of revealing opportunities, for example, uh, of having mentorship within the work environment. Mm -hmm. Um, The way that the work environment was set up for Maddie is she was in a job that involved a task where it only required 30 minutes of training. And she was working with a machine that was very standardized. And the company manager and CEO acknowledges that the only reason Maddie is still in that job and a robot hasn't replaced her is because it's cheaper to hire human labor than it is to invest in technology. Mm. And what the students help to reveal is through these discussions is that Maddie is in a position interacting with this machine that she's assigned to. And even though it is fairly menial task, pushing a button, problems emerge in the process. And she is there with that machine and therefore has sort of more intimate knowledge of the problems, right, that are repeating as a result of her interaction with that machine. The way it's set up now, if the machine breaks, an engineer from a different department comes in and fixes it. And so my students have helped to note that that's an opportunity for Maddie to engage with the engineer to problem solve, for her to learn more about that technology, for Mm -hmm. her to even demonstrate, right, her value as a shop floor worker in bringing certain knowledge to bear in long-term solutions. So it's examples like this where um, you can sort of change the structure of work, change the labor process Mm -hmm. so that it creates these opportunities. And so when you... you became a fellow here Mm -hmm. at the Institute. What did you end up working on? So when I was a fellow in, I believe it was 2012, my main project at the time was on the hidden talent, knowledge contribution of Latino immigrant construction Mm -hmm. workers. I really used that time to delve more deeply into that project, to finish writing a number of journal articles to also do some public writing on the topic Mm -hmm. um, for policy organizations, um, advocacy organizations. What would you say to faculty thinking about applying to the fellowship? First, I think it's a really valuable experience to get out of your comfort zone and to be in a place where you have to explain your work to people who are outside your field. I think it ultimately helps you sharpen your ideas and your thinking. In my case, it completely transformed the way I was thinking about skill. So as someone who comes from a background in planning, I often thought about skill as something that was tangible, Mm -hmm. that was measurable, something that we would invest in training, and that training would generate skills that could then be sort of defined and applied and uh, would produce certain outcomes that we could track. My interactions with faculty, especially those in English literature, Germanic studies, really helped me realize that skill is ambiguous. 
that it is fluid, that it is a social construct, and that it is something that is um, very much uh, embedded right in the interactions that happen in the workplace or that happen in the sort of social organization of work. And so that really helped me think about a different approach to workforce development, not as just treating skill as something that is an individual attribute that we want to invest in, but something that is open to interpretation and reinterpretation. One question I have, and I ask uh, faculty this all the time, is what do you read in your free time? What are you, or what do you do in your free time if it's not necessarily reading, but what, what are you interested in then when it has nothing to do with teaching or research? Mm-hmm. Well, I rediscovered my love of fiction about a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. So I have mostly been devouring novels during my free time. Can course. you name a few? Well, I think my absolute favorite in the last year and a half was El Canto by Anne uh, Patchett. Mm-hmm. Am I saying that right? Yes. That was a wonderful, wonderful book. I very much liked uh, Donna Tartt's Little Friend mm-hmm. and also The Goldfinch. Oh, yes. Those are two, three that I have very much enjoyed over the last few years. I have a seven-year-old son, Mm -hmm. so I spend a lot of time um, playing board games with him. (laughs) Which board games do you do? do? Um, So two that um, we've been playing a lot of late. Um, One is called Loot. Um, yes, it's that's a fun game. Um, and another one is called um, Millborn. So it's a card game, but it's about racing cars. And when do you sleep? <laughs> I always want to know. Like, are you an early morning person? Or when do you do your work? When do you rest? That sort of thing. Um, so... About five years ago, I embraced alternative sleep patterns. (laughs) Oh, my. Talk about that, because that is... Well, there were were a few articles that came out Mm -hmm. in, I think it was the BBC and the New York Times, um, based on research that had looked at writings pre-electricity and had determined that the eight-hour sleep is a modern construct Mm -hmm. and that, in fact, most people prior to a time when there was well-illuminated streets and electricity was the norm used to adopt first and second sleep habits where they would sleep for about four hours, wake up for about two, and then go back to sleep for three to four hours. And so that is now my sleep pattern. And so between first and second sleep is when I do a lot of reading. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes I do my grading then. Um, I try and mix it up. But it is, as long as you budget 10 hours, then you can get roughly seven to eight hours. That's amazing. (laughs) So I'm I'm grateful to the literary scholars. Reveal that. <laughs> so wait, when are the four? When are the? When's the first sleep? What are the hours of the first sleep? I probably shouldn't admit this, but I usually go to bed when my son does at about eight thirty. <laughs> wow! So you're you're up at at twelve thirty. Twelve thirty or one. One o'clock, yeah. and then you. And I will send emails sometimes, which really <laughs> scares my students because they think I do pull all nighters. I love it. <laughs> and you feel rested. I feel very rested. Oh, that's yes. Well. 
there you go, folks. That's that's how you get it done. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to um, to meet with me, and sure. uh, and uh, I just thank you very much. Check back at ih.unc.edu for news on events and the latest podcast. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ih underscore unc.